The theme of cocaine is benzos until it isn't. Welcome to EMS Cast, where we provide high-level education for you, the providers on the streets. I'm Ross Orpitz, and today we have uh, Dr. Leslie Pepin with us, who's a toxicology fellow at the Rocky Mountain Poison Center. Hi, my name is Leslie Pepin. I'm a first-year toxicology fellow at Rocky Mountain Poison Center, and I also do some attending shifts at the Denver Health Emergency Department. Leslie, welcome to the podcast. We brought you onto the podcast today to talk about something that I think many of our listeners are probably actually familiar with and have seen a fair amount in their careers, and that is cocaine use. We often get activated for these patients because they're hyperactive and agitated and causing a danger either to themselves or others or smashing things out in society. But there are actually some more nuances to cocaine that aren't as common but are certainly more deadly. And this, we decided to talk about this topic because of a case that actually recently happened in our emergency department. And this was a young, otherwise healthy 20 year old, 20 something year old female who was at a party using some cocaine and then was actually found down in a restroom, pulseless and apneic. And EMS got activated, they did CPR, and they ended up getting pulses back, but it was the cocaine that actually led to this arrest. And so I wanted to bring you on to talk about some of the more deadly and less common effects that we of cocaine that we don't always think about, but are certainly super important to recognize and treat appropriately in the field. So just to start us off, why don't you talk to us about cocaine, how and why it's used, and, and what it does in our body. Thanks for having me, Ross. I think that's a it's a great case to get started with. It's excellent care provided by the medic team and by the emergency department. And it's a great example of when cocaine toxicity can go really wrong. I think in general, the vast majority of cocaine-related cases, they don't end up in the emergency department. Most of the patients that we see um, are having a more serious presentation related to this drug. Cocaine is a neurotransmitter reuptake inhibitor, and it specifically inhibits reuptake of major catecholamines like epinephrine, norepi, serotonin, and dopamine. So in general, we anticipate these patients are going to be super agitated, tachycardic, just as you described, uh, midriatic, maybe even having seizures. But I think the interesting thing about the drug is in small amounts, it's actually safe, not recreationally safe, but it's, uh, it's used in the medical community as a local anesthetic because it does block sodium channels, uh, which can blunt your nerves response to pain and, and blunt that sensory response. So it's used over both the medical community and in, as abuse. Yeah, we still stock it in our Pixis in the emergency department and its indications for use are usually to help stop epistaxis and it can provide a little bit of local anesthesia as well due to that sodium channel blocking, which, which we're going to talk about a little later. One of the more common things I see people come into the emergency department for if they're not agitated is actually complaining of some chest pain in the setting of cocaine. Is this just because of the cocaine or do I actually have to worry about ACS or, or cardiac problems in these patients? Yeah, so that's a very common presenting complaint in abusers of cocaine. Fortunately, the majority of cases will be benign, but you still have to consider a cardiovascular catastrophe underlying that 
chest pain complaint. And that's simply because these patients are at higher risk due to that catecholamine surge. So things like aortic dissections, myocardial ischemia, even dysrhythmias have been described. I think the myocardial ischemia piece is the one that you have to be certainly attuned to. Um, And that's because cocaine can induce vasospasm, specifically in your coronary arteries, and they can cause a heart attack. So in the acute setting, just the catecholamines from the cocaine use itself is going to increase myocardial oxygen demand and can cause problems because of that. It can cause dysrhythmias and it can cause a lot of strain on your blood vessels due to the hypertension and put you at risk for things, aortic dissection and whatnot. But it sounds like even with chronic use, this can lead to some coronary artery disease and plaque buildup and actually cause occlusive ACS disease, even in young patients. Yep, that's absolutely right. Chronic cocaine use has been shown to increase plaque burden on the inside of arteries in young patients and in old. And in fact, in patients under 40 who have an MI, about a quarter of them are attributed to cocaine. Wow. Okay. So oftentimes because of effect of this drug with the increased epi and the tachycardia, you might think about something like a beta blocker in these patients, which is going to blunt that, that epinephrine response. Is this a good idea, bad idea? So I think beta blocker use in cocaine toxicity is highly debated. Um, and most would say to avoid it. And that's because epinephrine, the epinephrine that's released from cocaine use, the norepi that's released from cocaine use, are acting on more than one receptor peripherally. They're acting on beta-2 receptors, which actually lead to vasodilation, um, but they're also acting on alpha-1 receptors that lead to vasoconstriction. So when you block your beta receptors, you block your beta-2 receptor, and you leave that alpha receptor unopposed. So we call this unopposed alpha, and the risk is that you just cause profound worsening of your vasoconstriction. Is it seen every time? No, it's definitely case reportable. But at the end of the day, I don't really think there's a role for beta blockers in general in cocaine toxicity. We have much better treatments we can offer. So if beta blockers aren't the answer and even possibly contraindicated, what is the answer in these patients most of the time? It's benzos, tons and tons of benzos. And I think this is a great point to remind your listeners that when there's an overdose, you treat it with an overdose. So this is going to be an amount of benzos that you might not necessarily be comfortable with, um, but typically they're well tolerated. If you get to the point where you're running out of benzos, they're persistently having chest pain, uh, you might consider something that is going to be sort of just profoundly vasodilatory but non-selective like nitroglycerin, which is going to vasodilate through NO release. Okay, so we talked about kind of how cocaine works in the body, and we even touched a little bit on how we may treat this. Let's first start with kind of the most common presentation or EMS activation, and that's the sympathomimetic toxicity. What do we need to worry about with this? What are we going to see on our exam, and how are we going to ultimately treat this? I think cocaine is a great model for like the classic sympathomimetic toxidrome, and if you can recognize it, you can appropriately get treatment started early. So like we said, there's a surge of epinephrine, norepi, serotonin, So these patients are going to look tachycardic, hypertensive. They're going to have medriasis. There's a chance that they'll be hyperthermic, agitated. And in really severe cases, seizures and profound hyperthermia are not unusual. And how are you going to treat this? So say you have a patient hypertensive, tachycardic, agitated in front of you, is sweating, is hot to the touch. How do we fix this problem? 
So these are patients where you're going to want to start sedation pretty quickly. And the drug that you're going to want to use is one that works through your GABA receptor. So when you're on the ambulance, benzos are probably your best choice. I think midazolam is great. It works fast. It's easy to give IM or IV. And getting that on board early is critical. How much do we need to give? What you need to give is all dependent on what your patient looks like. So I think in an adult, if they look pretty sick, starting with five and titrating up is totally appropriate. Yeah, I think you're, you know, with everything we talk about, follow your local protocols. But the big takeaway here is titrate to your vital signs and the patient in front of you. If they continue to be tachycardic, hypertensive, agitated, they can use more benzos. And if you need to call in for that, call in for that. But that's a patient who can use more benzos and is going to benefit from that. Absolutely. This is someone who the sooner you can get them balanced with that sedating medicine, um, balanced from that hyperadrenergic state, the better off the patient will do. We mentioned hyperthermia in these patients. Is that of specific concern? Hyperthermia is a real concern and marker for um, and, and predictive of mortality. So hot patients do not do well. So we think of them as any higher than 38 degrees Celsius, I'm pretty worried. So in addition to being super aggressive with my sedation, these are patients I consider externally cooling. And on the extreme end, if you have a long transfer, you're thinking about intubating, potentially paralyzing to try and get their temperature back to normal. So these are patients who are super sick. You're telling me hyperthermia is just a marker of how sick these patients are and a marker of their likelihood to die from this overdose. So we're going to be really aggressive with these patients, lots of benzos as they need it, and then even do things such as cooling or even paralyze them and intubate them in an attempt to fix this sympathomimetic toxicity, which is going to also bring that hyperthermia down. Absolutely. It might be worth highlighting the fact that Cocaine isn't often used in isolation. Um, Other drugs sometimes might be at play. So it's not impossible to see a tachycardic patient who's hypertensive, but they have meiosis. And that might be because they used a speedball, heroin and cocaine mixed together. So I think recognizing pieces of a toxidrome can help guide you. And it's, it's okay to make a decision about benzo use if you're seeing features, but not the full toxidrome. Uh, And that's probably a polysubstance or maybe another medical condition at play. But tachycardia, hypertension, hyperthermia aren't good. Get them treated. And in these settings of these polysubstance overdoses, when you're seeing kind of this mixed toxidrome from those, or you have the report of this, how do you navigate your treatments to those kind of opposing drugs? I think it can be really challenging, but I think you have to be guided by what's going to kill them first. If you think they're profoundly agitated, they're a danger to you, a danger to themselves, you're going to sedate them. If you think the heroin is overdriving that toxidrome, they're not breathing, you're going to give naloxone. I think you just get guided by whatever is most likely to be a danger to the patient. Go so from you, there. So you treat the patient in front of you. The patient's pre- predominantly agitated, give them benzos. If the patient's not breathing, give them Narcan. I think for me, this is one of the beautiful things about tox that I learned is at the end of the day, it doesn't truly matter what they take as long as you can recognize these toxidromes and treat the patient in front of you and the toxidrome that you see driving the, the patient's problems in front of you. Yep, that's absolutely right. A lot of our treatments end in the same bucket, depending on how they look. Um, So treat the patient in front of you and that'll serve you well. You talked about seizures can occur in these patients. Do we treat these any differently? Typically a seizure related to a toxin, it's going to be short, self-limited, and very responsive to benzos if not. So the answer is almost always benzos in these cases. So benzos and more benzos. Exactly. 
So in the setting of cocaine, we talked about the increase of catecholamines that are going to be circulating around. When I think about an increase in epi or dopamine or neuroepi, I think about patients being at risk for dysrhythmias. Can this occur in the setting of cocaine? And if so, what type of dysrhythmias do we see and how do we treat these dysrhythmias? So dysrhythmias are definitely a real possibility with tachycardia being the most common, but some scary more challenging arrhythmias to treat that have been seen are things like supraventricular tachycardias, even torsades, and wide complex tachycardias like VTAC, with the worst outcome being the patient has a cardiac arrest as a result. So say we have a patient with SVT, do we treat this with adenosine or do we treat this any differently? I think you can take the standard ACLS approach for a tachydysrhythmia that you're confident. I think just remember that surge of epi isn't going away unless you blunt it with some type of sedation. So trying something like adenosine maybe isn't wrong and probably correct per ACLS, but truly what your real fix is maybe going to be fixing the epi that's circulating around, which you won't do until you give them those benzos that we talked about. Exactly. Address the catecholamines while you're addressing the complication of, of, of a dysrhythmia as a result. I'm noticing a theme here, Leslie. More benzos. The theme of cocaine is benzos until it isn't. Okay, what about our torsades or our wide complex tachycardia? Is this more benzos? Is this shock? Torsades um, is rare, but we do know cocaine can sometimes prolong your QT. You're going to approach it like you would for any other torsades patient. You're going to shock, you're going to give mag, and you're going to move through your ACLS guidelines. And then you said, worst case scenario, these patients can even arrest. And that's, that's what happened to our patient we were talking about in the beginning. So let's actually play the biophone call from the medics as they're coming to the hospital with this patient. Hey, that's our uh, in Denver Health 41. Can you hear me okay? Loud and clear. Go ahead. All right. I'm calling a 10 set up to you guys. We have a 21-year-old female cardiac arrest. Okay. Um, a friend on scene said last seen normal was anywhere between 30 minutes and three hours ago. Okay. Um, known alcohol as well as cocaine use. For us, she has been uh, initially she was asystole on the monitor after three rounds of epi and two milligrams of Narcan. Uh, we got pulses back briefly. Okay. Um, what did it look like on the monitor when you got pulses back? Uh, it was a wide PEA, or just like a, a wide complex. Okay. And was it slow or fast? It was, fast? It was yeah. slow. It was slow PEA. Have you guys given bicarb? We have not. Okay. With so a I can wide complex slow PEA and the cocaine, I would definitely administer bicarb. And how far away are you guys? Um, we're about four to five minutes out. Four to five minutes, and CPR is actively in progress right now? Correct. Okay, we will have a room for your arrival. We'll see you in four to five. Thank you. Paramedics arrived to find a young, pulseless, and apneic patient with a reported cocaine use. Do you approach this cardiac arrest any different than other cardiac arrests? You're going to approach it the same way. You're going to start CPR. You're going to get access. You're going to address the airway. But the reason for the arrest is going to be special, especially in a young person. And one of the things you really have to think about is, is this some degree of sodium channel toxicity? We talked about cocaine being used as a local anesthetic because it blocks sodium channels. When you're in overdose, it's going to block those same sodium channels in your myocardium. And that can lead to dysrhythmia 
and that can lead to cardiac arrest. What are we going to see? How are we going to know that this patient's experiencing toxic effects from this sodium channel blockade? Typically, what you'll see is you're going to see QRS widening. So when you get them on the monitor, you're going to see that QRS complex is wide. If you're able to get some type of 12 lead and you really march it out, it's going to be greater than 120 milliseconds. That would be super unusual in a young person. And if you know cocaine's on board, I would assume there's some type of sodium channel toxicity. I think if you're in the unfortunate state like this patient was, complete asystole up front, I think it's totally safe to assume that sodium channel blockade toxicity probably precipitated that cardiac arrest. And you'll approach those cases in the same way with sodium loading. So you're going to approach these cardiac arrests just like any other patient with your ACLS algorithms, with the exception of you're going to be more likely to add sodium bicarb in order to correct that sodium channel blockade. Exactly. And we call using sodium bicarb sodium loading. And essentially what you're using is the fact that sodium bicarb amps have a ton of sodium in them, and they also make the patient more alkalotic. And that combination frees up cocaine from those sodium channels and often fixes the dysrhythmia, or in the case like we saw in this biophone call, helps achieve ROSC in these patients who have had a cardiac arrest. So obviously cardiac arrest is the end common pathway of this cocaine toxicity if left untreated. But can we see these effects? Can we see this wide QRS before a patient actually arrests? Absolutely. Often this will be the patient that comes in with some type of tachydysrhythmia that looks really similar to VTAC. And most likely you will treat it like that. You will shock them and you won't get a response. You'll shock them again and you're like, wow, it's just not responding like it should. And then eventually it'll click, oh, this is a wide QRS. I know we use cocaine. This is probably sodium channel toxicity. You'll give them two amps of bicarb and it'll narrow out and the patient will stabilize. So that's generally, if you see this patient reports cocaine use, looks like he has VTAC, it's not responding to your standard ACLS, you start with two amps of bicarb? Absolutely. I'd start with anywhere from two to three amps for like your standard adult. The goal is to narrow the QRS and at a minimum stabilize it where it's at. I think a great tell if you're able to get a 12 EDKG is any QRS complex that's greater than 200 milliseconds. So that's like a full big box in your EKG. That's unusual for just VTAC. When I see that, I think about sodium channel toxicity and hyperkalemia. Okay. What if you give your two amps of bicarb and the patient still has a wide QRS? What do you do then? If you're confident what you're dealing with is sodium channel toxicity, you give two more amps. So you just keep giving bicarb until that QRS narrows out. You do. Eventually, you are going to reach some dangerous thresholds. Your sodium is going to be too high or your pH is going to be too high. I think in the pre-hospital setting, that's really challenging to know because you have no ability to get labs. So my recommendation would be that you continue to use sodium bicarb during your transport if you're suspicious that's what this is, in addition to ACLS care, depending on the state of the patient. And when they get to the hospital, you tell them what they gave and they can get the labs and see where they're at. So let's say that patient comes to the hospital. We're confident this is a cocaine overdose. We're confident this is side effects from sodium channel blockade. They've gotten a bunch of bicarb. Maybe it's worked, but only transiently. But now their pH is too alkalotic or their sodium is too high. And we're worried about using more bicarb. What, What might you recommend or do in that case? So I like what you said, it responded a little bit and then it got worse. So if I was the physician receiving that patient, the fact that they responded to sodium bicarb, which I define as a narrowing of that QRS complex, 
I've basically made the diagnosis. If I don't think I can give more bicarb, let's say my sodium is too high, it's now 160, that's dangerous. What I might switch to is an antidysrhythmic lidocaine. That's going to sound crazy because lidocaine is just another sodium channel blocker. Yeah, that does sound crazy. So you're treating a sodium channel blockade with another sodium channel blocker. Tell me how that works. Yeah, it sounds counterintuitive. But at the end of the day, just know there are different type of sodium channel blockers. There are ones that sit on the sodium channel and hang out for a long time, like cocaine. And there are ones that jump on and off real fast, like lidocaine. So lidocaine loves to bind, binds pretty strong, has a high affinity, and then jumps right off, giving that channel the opportunity to let sodium through. Okay, so essentially the idea is that lidocaine is going to kick cocaine off, but the lidocaine is only going to transiently stay on and hopefully open that sodium channel back on. That's the theoretical goal. I've definitely seen it work. Okay. So let's go back to the cardiac arrest patient. We talked about, you know, when somebody who's awake looks like VTAC, you start with two amps of bicarb. What about our cardiac arrest patient in the setting of, of cocaine use? So I think in the pre-hospital setting, your standard is going to be ACLS. There's nothing that says we should deviate it from it. I will say anecdotally, I've had a handful of cocaine arrests that were sick like this patient. And they responded really well to sodium bicarb amps. So I think, I would say in general, in talks, sometimes you deviate slightly from the standard ACLS. This is a great example. Giving a couple amps of bicarb in a young person who had a known arrest related to cocaine is probably a great idea. And so in that cardiac arrest, you'll give another, you'll give two amps, just like that wide awake talking wide complex tachycardia. Would you do more than that if they're still, you know, asystolic or wide PEA, but haven't regained a pulse? Would you do more than two amps or would you do two amps and then move on with ACLS and just continue ACLS? I think it would really depend the response I saw. If I gave two amps, they remained in asystole. I might continue to work the patient. If I got a a new rhythm. If I got a PEA, I th consider that an improvement from ACLS, or excuse me, uh, asystole, um, I'd probably try some more bicarb. Okay. I, think it, I don't think there is a science. It's totally an art in these scenarios. Just know that the sodium channel piece is a real concern when patients have a cardiac arrest. So trying to treat it and seeing if that adjunct is changing the way your patient is and their patient is responding is, is important. Fair enough. Given that these patients are often young, healthy, and we have a plausible reversible cause and in, in say cho sodium channel blockade from cocaine toxicity, would you recommend strongly considering transporting these patients for further care at the hospital? Is there more we might be able to provide for them in the emergency department? Or do, do the medics have all the tools they need to provide care for this patient? So I think the medics probably have the majority of the tools that they need. I think, unfortunately, sometimes these cardiac arrests are big brain bleeds, and you really don't know when you arrive to the patient. The one thing that medics typically don't carry that we do have in the hospital is a medication called intralipid, um, which is something that they might try if you were able to transport the patient. Okay. So in this setting of an otherwise young, healthy person who has a reversible cause, maybe there is some consideration for actually activating transport prior to receiving ROSC in these patients. They have literally everything that we would recommend by the book. They have bicarb, they have lidocaine, they have epi, they have two hands for CPR and they can intubate. Everything that we add on at the hospital are Hail Mary attempts. Intralipid, Hail Mary. ECMO, total Hail Mary. So the medics have everything. So they're comfortable running it. 
anything else about cocaine or or this case in general complications that we should be aware about that we haven't talked about yet? Yes, I think this case is um, really interesting because we know she was using ethanol at this party as well as cocaine. And when you mix these two compounds, you can get an interesting metabolite. It's called cocaethylene. And it is especially toxic to those sodium channels. And it has a pretty prolonged half-life. And you wonder in this case if that was really what made the patient so sick. It was not the cocaine, but actually the cocaethylene formed by her drinking while using this drug. So the combination of both cocaine and ethanol in these patients can actually put them at higher risk for sodium channel blockade and getting sicker. Yep. So big takeaway would be if you know your patient used both, you're snapping an EKG pretty early. And what is it about the combination of these two that makes makes things worse? They form a metabolite called cocaethylene. So it's just a unique structure, unique from cocaine and unique from cocaine's typical metabolism if ethanol wasn't already on board. Interesting. Okay. Anything else? Another big thing I would mention is we talked about how sick these patients get, how hyperthermic they get, and often paralyzing them becomes important. Typically in your emergency department or in some of your ambulances, if you're able to paralyze, your options are rocuronium or succinylcholine. This is definitely a scenario where I would opt for rocuronium over sucks. Succinylcholine and cocaine both require the same plasma esterase for metabolism. So if you give the patient succinylcholine, you risk either making their cocaine toxicity more prolonged or potentially prolonging their paralysis. So this is a great opportunity to to pull rock out of your kit. Good to know. Leslie, before I let you summarize all of this for us, I want to bring closure to the case that we started with. So after some sodium bicarb, the providers were able to achieve sustained ROSC on our patient. In total, she ended up receiving somewhere around 8 to 10 amps of sodium bicarb in the ED to treat this wide, complex rhythm she had. She then went up to the MICU where they managed her supportively with, you guessed it, benzos and some propofol sedation while she was intubated. She ultimately made a great recovery and was able to be discharged from the hospital to a rehab center with only mild cognitive and motor deficits. This was a truly harrowing case and one that highlights the importance of understanding the physiology of these overdoses and our potential antidotes. And it highlights why what you do in the pre-hospital setting matters. All right, Leslie, take us home with a summary of everything we just learned. So cocaine is a stimulant. It's going to block reuptake of your major catecholamines. So you're going to expect tachycardia, hypertension, agitation. You're going to treat that with benzos and aggressively. You're going to treat an overdose with an overdose. When you see a patient with a wide complex tachycardia, whether it be in a cardiac arrest patient or a patient that's up and talking to you, think about sodium channel blockade. Think about giving sodium bicarb if your standard approach to that dysrhythmia is not effective. Two amps in an adult, look to see that QRS narrow less than 120 milliseconds. Chronic cocaine use has been shown to increase athro, uh, to increase athro, arthrosclerotic. <laughs> no. Nope. <laughs> Chronic cocaine use has been shown to increase plaque burden of atherosclerosis. <laughs> I should not have had this fear. <laughs>